0: TED Audio Collective. Thank you to Target for sponsoring this episode.
1: You know, if you're on your phone and there's something really interesting about somebody's talking to you and trying to get your attention and you keep pulling away and looking at the person who's talking to you, but going back to your phone, that's what it felt like when I was trying to pull myself into a deeper relationship with my own work. From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 18 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Roseanne Cash talks about her career in music and about dreams. Oh, my God, I woke up just devastated. I mean, I knew what it meant. Hey, listener, a quick favor.
0: We are conducting an audience survey, and we'd be really grateful if you could take just a few minutes to respond. Please visit survey.prx.org slash designmatters to take the survey today. That's survey.prx.org slash designmatters. Thanks. Country Folk Pop blues americana call it what you will and you still won't capture the moving memorable music of roseanne cash one of the country's preeminent singer-songwriters roseanne cash has released 15 albums that have earned four grammy awards and 12 additional nominations roseanne is also an author of four books including the best-selling memoir composed which the Chicago Tribune called one of the best accounts of an American life you'll likely ever read. She is one of only a handful of women to be elected to the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. And in 2021, Roseanne was the first female composer to receive the McDowell Medal, awarded to an artist who has made an outstanding contribution to American culture. She joins me today to talk about her music, her writing, her 45-year career, and the 30th anniversary re-release of her album, The Wheel. Roseanne Cash, welcome to Design Matters.
1: Hi, Debbie. Thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. Roseanne, is it true that at one point growing up, you had a pet monkey?
1: I didn't have a pet monkey and I my mother did and I don't know what she was thinking and it still kind of <laughs> creeps me out that she did. I, and so it was I, yours by proxy then. <laughs> well, no, not even. I kept my distance. That is the first time anyone has ever asked me that question, so kudos. Thank you. Thank you. You were born in
0: Memphis, mm-hmm. Tennessee? Yes but you and your three sisters moved to Encino, California after your parents bought Johnny Carson's house on Havenhurst Avenue when you were three years old. Do you have any memory of what that house
1: was like? So, yeah, we bought Johnny Carson's house. My mother always told this story, I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, that Mrs. Carson left a pie in the oven. So (laughs) that's... Possible, possibly true. I do remember the house. I remember one day coming in to the living room and seeing a film crew in our house. There was this show called Here's Hollywood. And they had come to interview my dad, my mom, and at home, you know, come see how he lives at home. And I remember how much I resented having this television crew in our house and... Thus began a lifelong suspicion of journalists. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's not where I thought you were going to go with that. <laughs> the press <and> company accepted.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Well, I know it also made you skeptical of fame and the lack yeah. of privacy that it really caused your family, um, especially your mother,
1: Well, that's true. And that's really the takeaway from that story about the television crew is that I just hated the intrusion. I hated opening our private life. And so did my mother. My mother was incredibly private. And I had no illusions about fame, that I I knew it wasn't glamorous, that it didn't make you happy, that it didn't fulfill all your needs as a human being. And it was bone-crushing work, I saw my dad beyond exhausted. And yeah, so I've always had a very real understanding of what fame means and how destructive it could be. In your beautiful memoir, Composed,
0: you described your earliest memory and you wrote this. My earliest memory, perhaps the earliest possible flawed template for my life, dates to when I was around two years old. We were visiting my mother's parents in San Antonio, and my grandfather, Tom, the bespeckled insurance agent, master amateur magician, renowned rose breeder, and champion gin rummy player, took me to the park to feed the pigeons. He was sitting on a green bench tossing seeds from a bag to the birds, which were flocking around his feet. He kept saying, look at the birds, Roseanne, and I thought to myself with a sharp clarity that I now spend most of my waking hours trying to recapture, oh, am I supposed to pretend to be excited? I am supposed to act like a child, and so I did. I squealed obligingly, feigned alarm at the gathering birds, and pleased my grandfather. It was a bad way to start things off, actually. A compelling need to please people can be deadly. That paragraph says so much about who you were, who you
1: are. Have you gotten better with the compulsion to be a people pleaser? Oh, my God, yeah. That's one of the beauties of age, isn't it? You just don't give a damn what people think of you at some point. Uh, You know, there's an urgency that goes along with aging that you have more to say Less time to say it and yeah. trying to please people by your work or your, the way you live or the way you speak or who you are, or how you look, what shoes you wear, you know, um, what songs you sing. That all of that is distraction from the real work and the truth of being that you have little time left to live and be and I am aware of that every day now. I mean, it's uh, it's kind of moves me to tears to think about it, the, the sense of urgency that overcomes me sometimes. You know, Bob Dylan said it about performing, you know, that people-pleasing was death for an artist. You get outside yourself, you get self-conscious, you try to moderate or twist or define or truncate who you are and what you do and then the world doesn't have you. I was really struck in
0: your early years how much you needed to be the adult. Mm. Um, One of the things that really struck me was the creation of imaginary friends that you—I mean, a lot of children have imaginary friends. I had one named Goonie, (laughs) uh, but she was a little girl like me, and I insisted that she have a table setting at the kitchen table and so forth. But yours were adults, Mm -hmm. which is really, really unusual. And I'm wondering if you can talk about what kind of imaginary adult friends you made at the time.
1: I've wondered about that, too, why my imaginary friends were adults. And I've talked about this, you know, with various therapists over the years. And I think it's because there was a lot of chaos in my life and in my parents' marriage and my dad on the road and using drugs and my mother just beside herself with uh, fear and grief and worry and anxiety and anger. And I did a really smart thing. I created adults who were perfect, who saw who I was and loved me as I was and were protective. One of them I still have with me. (laughs) Really? I still talk to her once in a while.
0: I'm going to not ask you about her only because I know that you've been reticent about talking to them at all—talking
1: about them at all, rather. I have. I have. I don't tell people their names. I don't, you know, I don't like talking about them. <laughs> Absolutely. I totally respect that.
0: Um, you, you ended up, at that time, needing to be more of an adult in your family. You were the person your three sisters turned to in times of trouble, ultimately became the child who had to pretend not to be a child— so much so that you began to hate the very word child. Um, and I also was struck by the fact that you never cried, a fact at the time that you took great pride in.
1: How did you manage through this time? So my mom was not fully present. My mom had some really wonderful qualities. I learned discipline from her, her domestic Skills and arts were so refined and beautiful. President of her garden club, you know, dozens and dozens of close friends. But during that time when I was young and my dad was on the road and their marriage was falling apart, my mom was out of her mind, out of her body, and often literally hysterical. And I had three younger sisters And I took it upon myself to be an adult. And if my mom was taking up all the emotional space, you know, there wasn't much room for me to do it. Yeah. I think that that's maybe a common thing for children who have a parent who's kind of off the rails. You know, and my other parent was at that time was a drug addict and he was gone a lot. So... My family is well-known, but it's not that different from other families who the addiction is kind of the um, hub of the wheel. Did you know your dad was a drug addict at that time? You were so young. No, No. people didn't talk to children about that. And I don't even think my mother understood it. There just wasn't the consciousness about it as there is today. I want to read another
0: short excerpt from another book that you wrote, your book Bodies of Water, and you say this about your childhood. The summer I turned 11, I felt too big for my body, too small for my my heart, confused by the secrets and fears that permeated the very atoms of the air inside my home, and far too old for my age. You go on to write... When I was 11, I stopped dreaming the dreams that didn't come true. I stopped talking to people who didn't listen. I lost hope and retreated. I assumed that the root of the problem was that I was too strange for the real world. That being the case, I created a charming and dynamic personality to make the necessary forays into the outside, and I kept my strangeness for myself, my own particular jewels under lock and key."
1: I forgot I wrote that.
0: One of the things that I was really struck by in reading that was the notion that your strange self needed to be protected. Mm. And in some ways that gave me a lot of hope in thinking about who you became, that you didn't disappear that person, you just hid her under lock and key.
1: Definitely. And she's the one who's the artist and needs protection. And... As I felt safer, as I grew older, then she's the source of creativity.
0: I love that you referred to this strange part of yourself as jewels. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah, I had this uh this image of myself, that strange little self in uh she had a secret cave and in the cave were all the records she wanted and all the books and you know, uh access to all of these wonderful things and it was private and I could lock myself away and nobody could say a thing to me. <laughs> Sometimes I still wish I had that space to go to. Well, I do in my mind because that's all the uh, only place it ever was. I'm glad you protected it. Yeah. <laughs> when you were 12 years old,
0: your parents split up and your dad moved to Tennessee. You and the rest of the family moved to Ventura to a house you've described as a 60s fantasy come to life.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And you said that that with that move, someone opened up all the windows and let the air and light inside your life. For most children, young people, divorce is really quite traumatic. It seemed like that began a part of your life that actually improved.
1: Well, it did. We had been living on the top of this mountaintop alone, no children around, nothing around except dry brush canyons and rattlesnakes. And it was very solitary. It was the worst part of my mom's life and the worst part of her, you know, kind of craziness. And I think the divorce, I remember thinking, maybe now both of them can be happy. It was a relief. It's like, I mean, somewhere I knew this was not going to work. And they had destinies elsewhere, separate from each other. And so moving to near the ocean, which, you know, ocean is like a religion to me. So moving near the ocean, my dad cleans up. They both have new partners I was then on the verge of being a teenager and had, had was discovering so much music and poetry and books, all of those things I love so much. So yeah, it was like the light came in. It was fantastic.
0: You went to high school at St. Bonaventure in Ventura mm-hmm. and wore your Catholic uniform skirt very short, which I love. <laughs> um <laughs> You and a small group of classmates who were a little left of center called yourselves the Anarchy Society. And at that point, you thought you'd become a poet. What kind of poetry were you writing?
1: Oh, my God, Debbie, so bad. Just beyond. (laughs) Like, it should be burned in a bonfire with rituals so that nothing ever comes back from it. It was just terrible. Um, But at one point, this is so odd, but I got a letter from this woman a few years ago, and she said, I was your babysitter when your mom went out of town, and you were uh, in your young teens. And she said, and you asked me, how do you put poems to music? Ah. And I thought to myself, why in the hell would I ask a random babysitter when I had a great (laughs) songwriter as a parent? (laughs) But um, I remember, you know, I read a lot of poetry then. I wrote poetry. And then, uh, you know, in my late teens, I learned to play guitar and I started putting it together. At the time, you also considered becoming an archaeologist
0: or going to medical school. and, And I know you've had a lifelong interest in science and physics, but what compelled you to think about archaeology or medicine?
1: Well, I love science. I love thinking about what neurons do and the plasticity of the brain and all of that. And I love history so much. And I thought, Oh, God, it would be so great to live in a kibbutz and dig up ancient artifacts and, you know. Um, And I actually took a summer course in uh, anthropology at the local college. And I'm still really interested in history and science. It's a source of great curiosity and actually quantum physics as well now. The poetry in theoretical physics is so beautiful. Dark matter... The event horizon, mutual attraction. Quantum entanglement. Entanglement, you know. Oh, right? my God, it's so beautiful. I want to talk to you about dreams. Mm. Over the course of your life,
0: you've had a number of significant dreams that you've written about. Mm. You also shared that Collar Young had stated that a person might have five big dreams in their lives and that dreams that provoke a shift in In real consciousness. Mm -hmm. And I believe your first one occurred when you were 13, where you were playing cards with your mother and your grandmother in a small house. Um, You were old in the dream and aware that your life was nearly over. Um, Can you talk about that dream and and how it impacted you and your thinking about yourself at that time?
1: You know, it was so profound to me an experience that it seems reductive to even call it a dream. But I was asleep and this vision came that I was old, as you said, and that I was at the end of my life and I was playing cards with my mother and grandmother and we were just kind of mechanically putting the cards down on the table. And I realized that I had done that my whole life, just putting the cards down one after the other. And we weren't really speaking. There was no connection, just playing the cards. And I woke up in a sweat. And it frightened me so badly. And I realized that you had to make a choice to be awake in your life. And that kind of inertia and lack of awareness could creep upon you without you knowing it. And I made this vow to myself in the bed. As I woke up, I said, I will never be a card player. And I've referred to that dream in myself, thought of it so many times over the decades. And I even started once writing a story called The Card Players about it. Um, yeah, it's been a guiding light, that dream. It was if, if Carl Jung is right and you have five big dreams, that was my first one. I want to talk about your second one in a little
0: bit, but how many of those five do you think you've had?
1: Oh I know of two others. So maybe I've had three. Have you had any? Well, ever since I read
0: that, I've been thinking about it and I have I had one dream when I was in fifth grade as my life was falling apart, as my parent my parents had gotten divorced my mother got remarried and married a, a criminal and a bit of mm-hmm. a monster and i had this dream that i was i was looking out my back bedroom window and saw a pool party and knew that i was invited and was worried that i was late and i went to the pool and i jumped in and everybody was saying don't cross that line which was a you know one of the buoys that you mm-hmm. see in a in a pool or in a lake and i wanted to i went under the line and started drowning and at that moment in my dream i was back in my room and the walls were cracking mm. i felt like i was being strangled to death in in by the water in this sort of Whirlpool. I don't think I've ever told this dream to anybody,
1: by the way. Really? But it stayed with you your entire <sighs> life? Since It stayed with me my entire life.
0: And in the very, very, very first diary that I ever wrote, I wrote about it, mm. that I'd had this dream. And that's also why I'm able to remember it, I think, pretty accurately. I'm not remembering a memory of it. I'm remembering what I wrote about it at the time, which was vivid. Hmm. And I I think I was aware in that dream of my life about to fall apart. Up until that point, it was difficult but not unbearable. And for the next four years, it became unbearable. Hmm. And I think that was my sort of higher self preparing me, I think, without my younger self then knowing it.
1: I would definitely call that a big dream.
0: Yeah. But I don't know that I've had, and I've really been thinking about it because it's come up in so much of your work that I've read. Um, I've been thinking, you know, what are the other big dreams? I think most of my other dreams are more conscious and more aspirational mm. than psychological.
1: Mm. And organizing. Yeah. Organizing your experiences. Yeah. Another big dream I had is that I dreamed about my husband before I met him.
0: (gasps) Really? That one I don't know about. Tell me.
1: I was uh, sitting with him at the bottom of the ocean and I felt this profound, pure love. I looked at him at the bottom of the ocean where we were sitting together and it was this overwhelming feeling that I had never experienced before of complete connection with another human being and how pure that love was. And I could see his eyes and his hair and it was him. I woke up and I thought, I want to feel like that in my life. And then it wasn't long after that I met him. And it it hit me the second I saw him, that's the man who was in my dream and then i thought my life is going to get so complicated
0: and it did <laughs> and it, it did,
1: did. i kind of want to go to that oh god um, that that part <laughs> but i do want to talk
0: a little bit more about your sort of origin story because i the day after you graduated high school your father took you on tour with him mm. and that's when you learned how to play guitar. You learned from your stepmother, June Carter Cash. You learned from her sister, Helen, from Mother Mabel Carter, as well as Carl Perkins, all of whom you were on the road with your father at the time with. Did learning to play music come as easily to you as writing poetry?
1: Yeah, for my skill set, yes. I'm not a great guitarist, a great technical musician, but it did feel incredibly natural to learn those, particularly those Appalachian ballads, the first songs I learned to play on guitar. It just made sense to me, you know, I I could see the shape of the chord changes. So that part came naturally to me. Now, I'm not a natural musician like my husband and my son are, who can hear um, very sophisticated chord voicings and chord progressions and who have really advanced facility on a lot of different instruments. That's I, I don't have that. I'm jealous of it. But the part that I do have is very natural. It was at that time in your life that
0: you discovered your passion for songwriting yeah. that
1: mm-hmm.
0: you've talked about remaining undiminished to this day and led you into your life as a writer and a singer and into really your family's vocation. How did you struggle at that time with the idea of following in the footsteps of your family? Oh my god,
1: yes. And having to measure up? Well, yeah, I didn't want to be in the shadow. I didn't want to invite comparisons. I didn't I didn't want the life. I I knew what the life was like. I didn't need that much attention. I was a shy person. Um, I thought I would write songs purely for other people, and I was deeply passionate about that and about that career path. But I wrote songs, made demos of the songs, and I was in Germany at a Christmas party with my friend who worked at Ariola Records, and she played it, my tape for the head of the label. And they wanted to sign me to make an album. And I was staying with her and I couldn't get out of bed for three days. And she finally dragged me to a doctor and she said, you know, she said, what's wrong with her? And he said, he talked to me for a while and he said, she's depressed. I was, I was trying to make a decision. Did I want to do this in my life? I knew if I made an album, I knew everything that came with it. Then you toured, you had a public life. You had to figure out how to keep your private life safe, all of that. And then I decided to do it. I decided to make the record. That's not to say that my life as a performer has been from, you know, by default, because I did choose it. But it was um, not an easy choice. What made you decide to do it? Maybe the connection. Like I wanted to feel my songs connect with people. I knew there was something about my voice that was good. I didn't have a lot of confidence in it, but I knew that the tonal quality of it was pleasing and that there may be something I could do with that. But then I spent years feeling like performing was about being judged, uh, that you went on stage so people could pick you apart and judge you. you know. And then I came to understand that's not what it's about at all. It's about energy exchange. I interviewed a designer
0: named Bob Gill, very, very famous designers, very famous in the 60s and the 70s, especially. And after I interviewed him, I went and saw him speak somewhere and the audience wasn't quite laughing at his jokes. And he said, what are you, an audience or a jury?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, good.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You, you wrote your first, you said that you wrote your first good song, In 1978, you were 20 years old, and you were in, I think, the same friend who uh, sent your music to Areola, uh, Renata Damm's apartment Mm -hmm. in Germany, and it was titled, This Has Happened Before, and you've said this about the song... It was a young woman's song, tentative and too self-referential, too navel-gazing, but not to an extreme that would make you squirm. It's well-constructed, painstaking even, and I could hear the hard work in it. I was very proud when I finished that song, and it was the first time I felt like a real songwriter. And this is a question that I ask almost every songwriter that I've ever interviewed. Can you talk about what happens to you when you're writing a song. Where
1: does a song come from? Oh, God. A song comes from a, a mystery. There's a mystery about songwriting that if you could pin it down and say what it was, then it wouldn't be songwriting anymore. It comes from some creative source that's undefinable, like all creative work, I think. And tap into that and get the thrill of that energy of being inside it and having it inside of you. I mean, that's the ultimate. I'm sure you know it in your own work too. It's like, you know, when it's jagged and troubling, and then you know, when suddenly it, it opens up and that you feel this rush of it being right, everything's moving as it should. In writing a song, like sometimes in the beginning, I'll have that burst of inspiration. And I kind of see the full potential of the song, even though I haven't written it yet. Then I start working and then it's drudgery. You know, it's like uh, painstaking, as you said, finding the right line, finding the right word, you know, the chord progression, turning that line over in your hand, like Natalie Goldberg said, turning it over in your hand like a rock until it's smooth. Then all of the doubt and self-annihilation, like, why am I doing this? This is shit. What made me think I could become a songwriter? You know, Bob Dylan, why should I bother Bob Dylan to do it all? And if you can just put that aside, the internal critic, long enough that you can then get home with the song, get to the end of it and complete and then edit. And there are some songs that the thrill of it all opening up has been longer than the drudgery part and others where the reverse was true.
0: You've written how your friend and songwriting mentor John Stewart told you that we're all just radios hoping to pick up each other's signals, and have stated that you've spent your whole life trying to clear the static. How do you do that?
1: Oh boy. It's a daily process, isn't it? I mean, I know what frees me up. Um, Solitude, the ocean, going to look at visual art, talking with someone I really respect who's also an artist, going to a new place, nature. Yeah, there are a lot of things that clear the static.
0: Now it's time for an ad I created with our sponsor.
2: Target 20% of Americans have some form of disability that we have excluded from our lives, from partnerships, from creativity, and that is about to change.
0: Tom DiMaria is the Director Emeritus at Creative Growth, an art nonprofit based in Oakland, California. The organization advances the inclusion of artists with developmental disabilities in contemporary art by providing them with supportive studio environments and gallery representation.
2: Creative growth artists make work that's visually appealing and references their own worldview. And many of our artists have been coming every day for 35 or 40 years.
0: I loved reading about one of your artists who is blind, and it really pushed me to reconsider how people make and approach art.
2: Monica Valentine is an artist who has orthotic eyes and can't see and makes elaborately intricate sculptures out of pins and colored sequins and beads and styrofoam that are organized by color that she says she feels in her hands. There's a enjoyment of the work of an artist from Creative Growth because it's so personal, it's so visceral. And we still have to knock down doors and say, this work is contemporary, but that is really changing. Now people come to us and say, can we include your artists in this exhibition?
0: What would you consider to be some of your biggest successes over the years?
2: I think one of the biggest successes, if I look back over 20 plus years, is really how artists with disabilities are in so many different venues. If you go into San Francisco Museum of Modern Art right now, there's William Scott painting on the wall. And for William to go there with his family and to have viewers come and see it in a contemporary context is amazing. Next
0: year, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art will showcase a major acquisition of work by the artists into the museum's permanent collection.
2: And I think if anyone then doubts that the walls and the barriers are not gonna come down, this will be a moment to say, like, it's all changing. I think what's interesting with the creative growth artists is that they don't really separate the world of design from the world of art.
0: Creative growth artists have also partnered with brands. And one of their favorite design collaborations was with a longtime supporter.
2: Target. A transformative moment with our relationship with Target is the partnership that we did with Method Soap. Method said, we really want to bring your artist's work forward. We want them to be designers for us. So the Method team came. It's like, what does that design smell like? And we came up with the whole package and we sold millions of bottles. Of all the projects in museums and Exhibitions that Creative Growth has done. Walking down the block to our Target store with the artists and they see the product on the shelf was amazing.
0: How have these design collaborations impacted Creative Growth?
2: I think it just broadens the scope of how our artists can be seen in contemporary society as creative leaders. The artists feel like they're valuable and they've done something to contribute. You know, if you grow up with a disability in America, you're often measured by your deficiencies, not by your accomplishments. And when creative growth changes that idea and everyone is has these accomplishments that they're proud of, they become different people.
0: Through strategic partnerships with organizations like Creative Growth, Target leverages their resources to help reduce disparities, to provide equitable and inclusive opportunities, and to strengthen the diverse needs of the communities they serve. Visit Target.com to learn more. It's the most wonderful time of the year, and that means it's officially time to kickstart your holiday shopping. Uncommon Goods is here to make your holidays stress free by scouring the globe for the most remarkable gifts for everyone on your list. Whether you're shopping for mom, dad, teenagers, in laws, or your best friends, Uncommon Goods knows exactly what they want. Some of my favorites are the personalized word search blanket, a cozy, soft cotton throw secretly filled with the names and birthdates of my loved ones, and my really unique stemless wine glasses featuring the complete text of Maya Angelou's stunning poem, Phenomenal Woman. To get 15% off your next gift, go to uncommongoods.com slash designmatters. That's uncommongoods.com slash designmatters. For 15% off. Don't miss out on this limited time offer. Uncommon Goods. We're all out of the ordinary. Your first album came about because your friend gave your songs to a record company in Germany. And I love that despite having a parent who was one of the most famous singer-songwriters in the world, you were recommended to your first record label by a friend in Munich. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (sighs) And I also read that you wanted to change your name because you didn't want to be associated or think that your success or any success that came was because of
1: any family favor. I did think about changing my name to Roseanne Rivers, which is my paternal grandmother's maiden name. And I just kind of mentioned that to my dad, that I was thinking about changing my name. And he didn't say anything. And then when I made my first album, you know, under my own name, he said, I'm so glad you did that. It would have hurt him. And he's told me that, that he would have been hurt by that. And I, I see why now. I'm proud of my legacy. There's no reason to deny it. But as a young person in her early 20s, I was just floundering. How do I I carve something out for myself?
0: Well, while you were making your first record, a record producer named Bernie Von Ficht had wanted you to record a song called Lucky. Mm -hmm. And despite his plea, you refused. He went on to give it to another artist who ended up having an enormous hit with it. And you've said that you wouldn't have recorded the song even if you had known it would sell triple platinum because you knew you'd have to sing it for the rest of your life.
1: It's so true.
0: Were you always that certain of what you wanted to record?
1: Oddly. Where did that strength come from? I don't know. But oddly, yes, from a really young age, I had this right or wrong, this powerful sense of what song was right for me. And I betrayed myself a couple of times when someone twisted my arm, but not that often. I don't know where it came because early on that would have just been pure uh, hubris, you know, like because I didn't know anything yet, except I knew that. I don't know how I knew it. Maybe it was because of everything I listened to from early childhood on. Maybe it was just I was always a very determined, ambitious person. I don't know. How were you managing the idea
0: of becoming a singer-songwriter, performing for the public, and balancing that with your distaste for fame and attention?
1: Oh, I had a lot of anxiety, so much anxiety, and trying to learn how to balance it, wanting to keep my private life and working really hard to do that, learning how to work with a band, you know, I mean, I was a neophyte, was trying to figure it out and I didn't have much confidence as a performer. I had, I was developing a lot of confidence as a songwriter, but not so much as a performer.
0: Your first album was only distributed in Europe and is now a collector's item.
1: I hope not. (laughs) 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 It
0: is going for quite a lot of money on eBay. (laughs) Um, When you came back to the U.S., your album Seven Year Ache was a huge hit, and the song itself reached number one in the country charts the week of your 25th birthday, even crossed over into the pop charts where it reached number 22. Two more number one singles followed from it, Blue Moon with Heartache and My Baby Thinks He's a Train. Now, Despite the recognition and the accolades, you said that during that entire period, you felt a constant slow burn of panic. Yeah, I did. What was your family thinking at this time? What was what did your mother and father think about what you were doing and your stepmother and how were they they helping you manage through that panic? Did you share that with them?
1: No, I didn't share it with them. I've I've not been good about that through my life of asking for help. I wish I had, actually. My dad could have helped me more. Well, I I had a baby at 24, and then this big record at 25. It got to number one on my 25th birthday, and I was just terrified. Like, I was panicked as a new mother. I was panicked that I was becoming famous. And yet, Debbie, there was something so—I don't want to say preordained, because that sounds very grand— But it it seemed like, oh, yeah, this this was always going to happen. This is what was meant to happen. Deal with it. By the time you released the album
0: Rhythm and Romance in 1985, you were sure you were never going to set foot in a recording studio again.
1: Uh, Yeah, I had a miserable experience making that album. Is that
0: your least favorite album?
1: Yeah, probably, because... It was so hard making it, and it was right in a period in the 80s where we just overused all kinds of layered sounds, synthesizer sounds. It's probably coming back and being trendy now. Everybody loves what's going on in the 80s. But um, it was three producers. I made it in New York, L.A., and Nashville. I started on April 16th of one year, and it finished on April 15th of the following year. There was an executive producer I didn't get along with, and we literally had yelling fights in the studio. It was just painful all the way around. And at the end of it, I said, I'm never making another record. And then I started getting notices from my record label, from the lawyers that I was in breach of contract, that I owed them an album. I owed them an album. It kept coming. And I would just tear up the letters and throw them away. (laughs) Uh, I was wondering what changed your mind. (laughs) Rodney Crowell changed my mind. Yeah.
0: Your first husband, producer of many of your early albums. Yeah. Um, One thing that I read as you were beginning to record King's Record Shop, your next album, was that you read an interview with Linda Ronstadt, wherein she stated that in committing to artistic growth, you had to refine your skills to support your instincts. Yes. And you've said that made such a deep impression on you that you clipped the article to save it. Yes. Did
1: that impact how you were approaching King's Record Shop? It did. Yeah, I put that in my wallet. I cut it out and put it in my wallet. And I thought anything that's fraudulent up to this point, any way I've been a dilettante, any way I've just been coasting or being cavalier about my work, it has to stop now. I kept that in the forefront and it was, I remember it being hard. It was like, now, you know, if you're on your phone and there's something really interesting about somebody's talking to you and trying to get your attention and you keep pulling away and looking at the person who's talking to you, but going back to your phone, which is an awful thing to do, by the way, that's what it felt like when I was trying to pull myself into a deeper relationship with my own work.
0: Hmm. And yet, King's Record Shop had four number one singles, which was a first for a woman in the industry. Yep, it was. Did that success come with any pressure to continue doing the same kind of work? I mean, sort
1: of the opposite of what Linda Ronstadt was
0: recommending?
1: Absolutely. The guys at the label, they see that and they're like, okay, go do that again. You know, it was enormously successful. Especially if this was the contracted record. <laughs> yeah, G- just go do that again get and deliver it to us. So I had a lot of leverage with them, and I was starting to write some very dark songs. It was right at the beginning of when my marriage was falling apart, but I had a lot of leverage because of the success of Kings Record Shop. So I went to the label and I said, I want to produce the next record myself and I want a lot of money. And they said, okay, to both. So I got a lot of money. I went in the studio with these dark little songs, uh, hired the band, hired a great engineer, Roger Nichols, recorded it analog. And st- everybody was going digital at that point, but we recorded analog. And... I made this album that I thought was the truest reflection of who I was up to that point. And the label didn't want it. I know.
0: I, I I don't even, I mean, I've listened to it so many times in prep for this interview as well as listening to it when it first came out. Interiors. Interiors, yes. And it's so interesting. You know, so many people talked about it as your divorce record, but you weren't divorced yet. So it was sort of this, as you would put it, postcard to the future. I see it as a departure record. Oh, yeah. And a conduit to a new way of making music. Like that felt like almost like the, the necessary stop to clear everything out to then sort of begin again.
1: You're absolutely right. It was a turnstile. It was a... Res- turnstile, it, yeah. And it was a reset. And it was the culmination of pulling my face away from the phone, you know, to use that metaphor again. It was like, okay, I've committed to this deeper relationship to refining my skills so I can support these instincts, as as Linda said.
0: Now, the album, despite the record executive's response, the album was nominated for a Grammy. It was. You lost to John Prine, so basically you didn't lose. <laughs> Um,
1: (laughs) That's so true. In fact, I would have been
0: embarrassed
1: if I had won
0: against John Prine. (laughs) Um, How do you view that work now? Because at the time you thought it was your your best work to date. The record company didn't think so. They didn't support it. So it didn't sell as well because it wasn't supported. Not because it wasn't very good. Obviously, it was nominated for a Grammy. How do you view that work now all these years later?
1: Well, I, I should say, you know, I was signed to the country division of Columbia then, and it was nominated in the folk category. Right. So the wider industry got it. They knew it wasn't a country record. And, you know, the country division of my label knew it wasn't a country record, which is why they didn't want to do anything with it. But people outside of that got it, and they put it in the right category for the Grammys. Um So how do I view it now? I view it as the moment my life changed. I view it as the moment that I recommitted. And, you know, some of the songs are a little navel-gazing. I wish I had sung certain things better. I wish I had arranged it. I wish I had been a more deft producer. All of those things, you can look back at your work and go, oh, I could have done that better. But it's an accurate reflection of the moment except for one thing. What? There's one song on that record that uh, makes me cringe and it wasn't my fault. <laughs> well, <laughs> well it kind of was my fault cuz I let it on the record, but I when I finished the album, I played it for Rodney who hadn't, you know, heard it in the studio at all and he Loved it, and he said, but it's not finished. You need one more song. You need something that's really up-tempo. This is a really dark, ballad kind of record. I was devastated when he said that. And he says, no, come, come on, just try write this song with me, you know. So we wrote this song called Real Woman. And I was not interested, not attached to this song, but I thought, well, maybe he knows something I don't know. So I kind of just almost divorced myself from the recording of that one song. I did my part. He was going to put some guitars on his overdub. I went shopping like, okay, do it. I'll come back and listen later. <laughs> and I came back in and he played it, the overdubs for me and what he had done. And he said, what do you think? I said, I think it sounds like a fucking Pepsi commercial. <laughs> but I put it on the record, Debbie. I mean, that's my fault. But I can't listen to it now. If you re-release it, you can take it out. I will. (laughs) But I told that story. I wrote about that in my memoir. And after Rodney read my memoir, he goes, oh, man, I really cringed when I read that chapter. (laughs) Oh, I thought you were very nice to him
0: in the memoir. Yeah, I was. What is it like to weather the whims of an audience? And how much does that impact how you feel about what you do?
1: There are certain ways it does impact me. I mean, the letters I get when people say, this song got me through a really hard time. Black Cadillac got me through losing someone. Or Interiors was my divorce record. I listened to it through a really painful time. That means something to me. I don't take that lightly. That's an honor if you can help someone uh, vicariously in that way. I got really, also this was funny, I got really discouraged a few years ago. Like, what is the point? Why am I doing this? I'm at the point of irrelevancy. <laughs> and I said something on Twitter, like, I'm sequencing my album, but I wonder what the point is, you know? Nobody listens to albums in sequence anymore because you just, you stream and it, you know, random play or whatever it's called. I said nobody cares about that, and I got instantly back a couple hundred tweets. I care, I care, I care. Take your time, sequence it like you want it done. That's the way I want to listen to it. The way the artist hears the sequence. And I was, I was floored. And I think that there's a core audience that I have that has stayed with me through thick and thin. You know, through the bad records, through the good records, through the bad shows and the good shows. And they let me know they're devoted. And I'm devoted to them. You know, like I said, it's energy exchange. You've talked
0: about trying to perform or performing for the 6% of the audience who are poets. Mm. Only on a bad and night. If, oh, oh, only on a bad night. Because I was like, that seems like a really low percentage of the people that would be coming to see Roseanne Cash. I would imagine that they're sort of all poets at all.
1: Well, I took that line from um, my friend and mentor, John Stewart, who's sadly no longer with us. But he said, because I, I, I called him up after I had a bad show and I was like lying in bed after the show, just filled with anxiety. Like, oh God, what I did. And, da, da, da. and I called him up the next day and just like vented. I it's just terrible. And he said, so you had a bad gig. What do you want me to do? Realign the planets? Sing to the 6% who are poets. And that's on a bad night when people are on their phones and aren't listening, you know. But the other times, I mean, I can feel it when 94% are connecting with me.
0: I think this is around the time you had another of your significant dreams about an old man named Art.
1: That was around the time of King's Record Shop when we were talking about deepening the relationship. Yeah. And I believe that... Well, can you tell the dream? I think it would be better if you share. Yeah. It. I dreamed that I was at a party. And at this time, I, I should say I had cut out Linda Ronstadt's interview and put it in my purse. So sometime after that, I dreamed I was at a party And Linda was sitting talking to a man named Art, a little old man, and they were deep in conversation. And they were sitting on a bench and I went up and I sat next to Linda and I tried to join the conversation. And Art looked at me very coldly and he said, we don't respect dilettantes. And he turned away and continued his conversation with Linda Oh my God! I woke up just devastated. I mean, I knew what it meant. I don't. I,
0: I. I would love for you to to tell me what it meant.
1: That I was, as I said before, you know, that I. I was. There was moments of just coasting, of just casually touching the work instead of really going deep into it, being distracted and just showing up for the bare minimum, or. This is all an inside game, you realize. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know that Mm. other people would see that or know that, but as an inside game, it was real. And the larger idea of art was telling me that I better start showing up or I was cut out of the party, out of the conversation.
0: Well, it was a good good dream to have. As difficult as it was, it ended up propelling you to move to where you really wanted to live, which was Manhattan. Mm -hmm. You moved to Morton Street in Greenwich Village, one of the greatest streets on the planet. (laughs)
1: Uh, Just a few
0: steps from Mad Um Uminov uh, guitars. (laughs) It's really interesting. Your moth uh, talk, you talked about how New York at that time was kicking your ass until the real you showed up. Yeah. And I love that New York does that. New York kicks your ass until you really show up. That's right. How did it do that for you? How was it doing it for you at that time?
1: Well, it was complicated by the fact that I was going through a divorce when I first moved to New York and, 1991. I was confused. I was in love with John Leventhal, but we weren't together. I, I was writing songs that were just gut-wrenching from the depths, and I didn't know what to do with them. And I didn't have good friends in the city yet. Although I had been to the city many times that I knew people, I didn't have a deep network that could support me. You know all of the little things, like the construction guys who would yell at you, and the homeless guy who threw a rock at my head, and um, (laughs) and getting lost, and part of the story I told in the moth about um, (laughs) about getting on the subway. It was when we used tokens on the subways, not a metro card getting on the subway with a token in my pocket and realizing that I had left my wallet at home and that it was my last token and getting out of the subway into a downpour, like a monsoon, and having no money to buy an umbrella or get back on the subway or get a taxi and just standing there going, what? Now what? Now what? (laughs) So, yeah, it kicks your ass. Oh, but you, you have to tell the best, okay, you get the best part. Okay, a phone I wasn't going to tell that. So I had my, you know, five-pound 90s phone with me. <laughs> you, you remember those old phones? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And at that moment, the phone rings. And I stepped under an awning and kind of answered the phone, and I miserably said, you know, hello. And... <laughs> This voice said, "Roseanne, this is Al Gore." <laughs> and I said, "Mr. Vice President, so nice to hear from you." And you know, <laughs> he said, "I'm over at the uh, the Regency or wherever he was." And he said, uh, "Can you come over? I want to talk to you about this new environmental initiative I'm doing, and I'd want a concert uh, attached to it." And I wanted to talk to you about that because I had done a couple of things like that for him before. And I thought really quickly, and I thought, I can't walk there. I'll be a drowned rat by the time I get there. I have no money to get over there. So I made some excuse to not go meet the vice president to help (laughs) save the planet. (laughs) I'm glad that you ultimately did
0: meet and continue to work together. Absolutely. But there's something so wonderfully human about that story. It allows me to forgive myself for so many things. Yes. I just need you to know that.
1: (laughs) I'm so glad. Right? I suffered for you.
0: Thank you. (laughs) Roseanne, most of your albums since, the the album after Interiors, which was The Wheel, Rules of Travel, the multi-Grammy award-winning The River and the Thread, feature you writing almost all, or co-writing with your husband, as you've mentioned, the Grammy Award-winning musician and producer John Leventhal. I'm wondering, how, how do you feel your writing has evolved since King's?
1: Well, I think that I don't overuse nature metaphors like I used to. I think that I am not as navel-gazing, that I've turned outward, that I'm not as subsumed in the intricacies of romance all the time, although that's still very interesting to me, but that there are um, wider subject matters, you know, out in the world that I'm interested in writing about as well, and that I'm more willing to take on difficult topics and not care how they're received. In many ways, I see your work evolving.
0: Very similarly, the way Joni Mitchell's work has evolved, where the writing is so much more sophisticated. There are poems that could stand on their own. Their are poems set to music, and they tackle deep human experiences, sometimes including love, but certainly
1: not entirely. Well, I am incredibly honored to be compared to Joni in any way you know I revere her but yeah I mean the song that comes to mind right now is a song I wrote two years ago called The Killing Fields I love that song that song is magnificent thank you and it's not on any album but I wrote it during the Black Lives Matter protests about lynchings in Arkansas yes I knew that, you know, that's not going to be on top 40 radio, but it was essential that I write it. And I'm incredibly proud of that song. And I saw how it should be laid out before I wrote it. And I saw that it should be in the tradition of a narrative ballad. And, you know, so it was like building the structure and foundation of a house before I could fill in the verses.
0: After the success of The River and The Thread, you won, I think, three Grammys for that album. Mm -hmm. Um, Folks were telling you that you had to make another record just like it. Mm -hmm. I mean, hadn't they learned already? (laughs) (laughs) That wasn't the path you were going to take. But how hard is it to move away from what you know is successful?
1: It's not hard for me. I still have that same youthful hubris Of going, But I know what's right for me. I mean, after The River and the Thread, which I love that record. I'm proud of that record. But after that, there was so much happening. It was the Me Too movement. It was Donald Trump getting elected. I'm the mother of five children. You know, it was tearing me apart. And my daughter said to me, after Trump got elected, she said, I feel like I don't matter. Mm. And that just killed me. It just struck me at the core. And all of this swirling around, I thought, I have to write, I want to make a record that's addressing these things, that's about feminine experience, capital F, the betrayals, the longing, love, insecurity, rage, loss, all of it. And so that's what I set out to do.
0: Roseanne, in addition to weathering the ups and downs of the music industry, you've also had to weather some difficult health issues. You lost your voice for two and a half years due to polyps. Several years ago, you had brain surgery. The technical term for the procedure you had was I'm going to try to do this a decompression craniectomy and laminectomy for Cherry 1's Syringomelia. Cherry 1. Was I even close? Pretty close. That resulted in you getting 19 staples in the back of my head of your head.
1: Yeah, that was fun. So two and
0: a half years of polyps and then at least a year's recovery from your brain surgery.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: How were you able to manage a life without music during those times or a life with different kinds of music?
1: Yeah, a life without singing, really. That was an eye opener when I had the polyps. At first, I thought, well, it's not going to make that much difference to me because I think of myself as a writer first and a songwriter and losing my voice, it's not going to matter. I was devastated. I had no idea how uh, central to my self-image my voice was. So losing it, that was painful and hard. And, but I did develop this cottage industry of writing prose, And I kept getting commissions to write essays for different magazines. So that was... Yeah,
0: New York Times with the wonderful pieces. Thank
1: you. Everything from Martha Stewart Living to The Times, Rolling Stone. So that, it was a little doorway that has panned out very well for me. the brain surgery, it took a couple of years to recover from that. That was really hard. And um, I'm recovering from knee replacement surgery right now, which is really difficult. But at bottom, I'm an optimist. And I think of myself as a healthy person. And I don't like leading with disease and injury. I don't like that to be part of my,
0: you know. Absolutely. You know, I was actually even struggling to decide whether or not to include it, but I felt like it showed so much about your resilience and your stamina And then when I saw that you said that out of various forms of personal catastrophe comes art, if you're lucky, I thought, okay, that's an optimistic way of looking at these
1: really hard things. Well, yeah, I think being an optimist is the number one responsibility in parenthood Mm. because you can't steal a child's future by being pessimistic. You can be pessimistic about your own life, but man, keep it to yourself. Don't pass it on to your kids because they have everything ahead of them. And I I mean, luckily I'm naturally very optimistic. And I think my kids have, you know, they take that on. Roseanne, the
0: last thing I want to talk with you about is the brand new re-release of your album, The Wheel. Mm. It has been remastered as an expanded edition to celebrate the album's 30th anniversary. Congratulations on that. Thank you.
1: What was it like revisiting these recordings? I should first say that I got the master back from Sony after 30 years. It was in my contract. I was actually going to ask you that. Oh, it was in your contract. I was going to ask you if you had to buy them back. No, it was in my contract. There was a 30-year reversion. So I got it back and I didn't expect to feel the way I felt when I got it back. I didn't expect that ownership of my master recording after all these years would be an almost spiritual experience. There's just something about it, it's mine. Yeah. So, John and I decided to form a record label to remaster it and re-release it. It was never released on vinyl the first time because in 93 you weren't right. pressing vinyl. CDs. Right. Yeah. So, uh it's on vinyl the first time. We're doing a double vinyl thing where The other record is a live recording I did in 1993, and I rewrote new liner notes for it. You know, it's a beautiful package and everything. To revisit it, I mean, I don't like looking back generally. I really don't, because I I go back with too critical an ear. Go, I should have sung that better. Oh, I sound like such a baby. Why didn't I change that line? But owning it gave me this window to looking at it differently, which is that it was an incredibly important time in my life. It's the first record that John and I made together. First songs we wrote together. We developed a partnership in both music and in life that has lasted all these 30 years. We fell in love while making that record. And it started a whole legacy for me. So, uh, I I love the record for what it is. It's an accurate reflection of that time. And I feel really proud about putting it out again 30 years later.
0: Rumble Strip is the name of your record company. Mm-hmm. Are you going to re-release any other of your acquired masters?
1: Yeah, I'll, they'll start falling like dominoes. I'm going to start getting a lot of them back because some were 30, some were 35 years and yeah, I'm, I am I am going to remaster and release some of the old ones. I don't know which ones yet.
0: Roseanne, I want to end the show today with another short excerpt from your memoir. You state, I have been lucky. I have also been driven by a deep love and obsession with language, poetry, and melody. I had first wanted to be a writer in a quiet room, setting depth charges of emotion in the outside world, where my readers would know me only by my language. Then I decided I wanted to be a songwriter, writing not for myself, but for other voices who would be the vehicles for the songs I created. Then, despite myself, I began performing my own songs, which rattled me to the core. It took me a long time to grow into an ambition for what I had already committed myself to doing, but I knew I could be good at it if I put my mind to it. So I put my mind to it. Roseanne Cash, Thank you for putting your mind to it. Thank you for making so much art and music and writing that matters. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters.
1: Thank you, Debbie. This was a wonderful experience to speak with you. Thank you so much. Roseanne Cash's latest album is the 30th
0: anniversary re-release and remastering of her extraordinary album, The Wheel. You can read more about her body of work and her new record label at roseannecash.com. This is the 18th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we could make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
1: Design Matters is produced for the TED
0: Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. The interviews are usually recorded at the Masters in Branding program at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, the first and longest running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Weiland.